Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are in Acts chapter 15, so would you turn there, please? Let's pray together. Our Father, we now calm, quiet our hearts before you. We believe that what your Spirit has to tell us is very important and that you haven't brought us here by accident. For some, this is old territory. We know it well. For others, it's new. It's monumental. Father, we pray that your Spirit would speak to each of us and reaffirm the truth of what the gospel, the good news, is about. How it's changed our lives and how it ought to, through us, change the lives of others. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we could be afforded the health and the proximity and the time to gather together like this. So use this time, Father, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you about a man named Fred. Now, Fred inherited $10 million. But... There was a stipulation in the will that Fred had to make a choice, that he would either receive his inheritance in Brazil or in the nation of Chile. Fred chose Brazil. Sadly, it turns out that in Chile, he would have received his inheritance in land on which uranium, gold, and silver had been discovered. Once in Brazil, he had to choose between receiving his inheritance either in coffee or in nuts. He chose nuts. Too bad. The bottom fell out of the nut market and coffee went up to $1.30 a pound wholesale, unroasted. Poor Fred lost everything he had to his name. Well, he went out and sold his gold watch for the money he needed to fly back home. It seems that he had just enough for a ticket either to New York or Boston. He chose Boston. When the plane for New York taxied up, he noticed it was a brand new Super 747 with red carpets, chic people, and wine-popping hostesses. The plane for Boston then arrived. It was a 1928 Ford tri-motor with a sway back, and it took a full day to get it off the ground. It was filled with crying children and tethered goats. Over the Andes, one of the engines fell off. Our man Fred made his way up to the captain and said, Look, I'm a jinx on this plane. Let me out if you want to save your lives. Give me a parachute. The pilot agreed, but added, On this plane, anybody who bails out must wear two chutes. So Fred jumped out of the plane, and as he fell dizzily through the air, he tried to make up his mind which ripcord to pull. Well, finally, he chose the one on the left. It was rusty and the wire pulled loose. So he then pulled the other handle. The chute opened, but the shroud line snapped. Now in desperation, the poor fellow cries out. Now he's Catholic. St. Francis, save me. And a great hand from heaven reached down and seized poor Fred by the wrist, let him dangle in midair, and then a gentle but inquisitive voice asked, Would that be St. Francis Xavier or St. Francis of Assisi? (laughs) Poor Fred. 
Fred made so many choices and they all seemed to be the wrong ones. So here's the question. How do you know your choice is the right choice? How are you sure that your choice to be saved is the right choice? That your way of being saved is the right way? After all, there's lots of opinions out there about God and heaven and the afterlife and salvation. So how do you know that yours is the right one? That's a fundamental question. And it was a question that was both asked and answered 2,000 years ago at a council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. It is a threshold moment in the life and ministry of Paul the Apostle and for the future of the church. Because Paul, everywhere he went, was telling people, just believe, put all of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So... Is our salvation by God's work? Is our salvation by man's work? Or is it a combination? God does part, I do part, and we kind of work it out together, and we both make sure that we're saved? The short answer is in the song written in the 1700s that we just sang. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The word grace, as you know, most of you, it means undeserved, unmerited favor. The one who wrote that song was John Newton. John Newton said, I always remember two things. Number one, that I am a great sinner. Number two, that Christ is a great Savior. With that, let's begin then in Acts chapter 15. And we jump into the text and we understand that there is a doctrinal dilemma over the issue of grace that is going on. We read, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, that's called biblical understatement. It means they had a huge argument and disagreement. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, that's modern Lebanon, and Samaria, it's part of the West Bank, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Well, you can see the trouble is brewing, right? And probably it was while Barnabas and Paul were out on their first missionary journey throughout Galatia, parts of Asia Minor, that these certain men, verse 1, came from Jerusalem to Antioch. So that by the time they got back from their mission, they find their churches being divided. Very disheartening. And here's the deal. Paul and Barnabas, on this missionary trip, were preaching to Jews... 
but were mostly received by Gentiles. And their message is simple. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you're going to make it to heaven. You'll be received by God. You'll be saved from all of your past. You'll be right with God. Now, we didn't even go through any of the missionary journey of Paul, but if you go back to chapter 13, I want to give you some of these faith highlights. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. He is now preaching in a place called Pisidia. Therefore, he says, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, that is Jesus, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Down to verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words would be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 46, Paul addresses the Jews who rejected him. Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and of the Greeks believed. Verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Verse 27. They're now back in Antioch of Syria. And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So you can see, everywhere this mission group went, they preached the grace of God and believing in him alone for salvation. All right, now we get a little picture of the problem. We understand that these people down in Jerusalem are a little bit worried. After all, what started out as just a trickle of non-Jews, Gentiles getting saved, is now a torrent, huge. What do we do with them? On what basis can these new non-Jewish converts be saved? After all, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, they would have thought. He is predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures. Are we just going to tell them all you got to do is believe in Jesus? I mean, we've come up through the ranks of the law. Now, verse 1 calls them certain men. We find out in verse 5 that in Jerusalem they are Pharisees who believed. Most scholars refer to this group by this term, Judaizers. That is, they were saved Jews that had a a bent, an inclination toward keeping the law of Moses. 
what they were saying is, great, believe in Jesus, but also you've got to keep some of the laws that we grew up with that are also written in the Bible. They're called Judaizers. Paul calls them troublemakers. The book of Galatians is the sister book that goes along with chapter 15. In fact, Galatians arises out of what happens at this council in Jerusalem. And he recounts his own personal memory of this whole episode. Let me read just a verse, a couple of verses out of Galatians chapter 1. Paul writes to this young Gentile church, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven would preach any other gospel than what you have received, let him be cursed. Wow, Paul, tell us how you really feel about this bunch. Strong language. Why did Paul think they were so dangerous? Here's why. He understood that they're trying to mix the law with grace, which now makes it no grace at all. They're trying to add to a finished work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. In effect, they're saying, you can't be a Christian unless you first become a Jew. You've got to go through circumcision. You've got to keep the laws of Moses. And then... You can believe in Jesus. You just can't shortcut us and go to Christ. I heard a story of a millionaire. And somebody asked him, tell me your history. What's the secret of your great wealth? So the guy stood up straight with a furrow in his brow and he said, I worked hard. I was energetic. When I was first married, he said I was dirt poor. I had a a nickel left to my name and I spent my last nickel on an apple. I took the apple home and I polished it, made it shiny all night. I took it out the next day to the street and I sold it for a dime. I took the dime and I went and bought two apples and took them home that night and I worked hard and I polished those two apples so they were so shiny, brought them out to the street the next day, sold them for 20 cents. Took the 20 cents, bought four apples and he went on and on till he got up to $1.60. So you see, I worked hard and I was energetic even though times were tough. And then he finally said, then my wife's dad died and he left us a million (laughs) dollars. Now isn't that just like us? I mean, we like to start off by saying, when people say, well, why are you so spiritual? Well, I pray hard. I work hard. I read the Bible a lot more than you. Here's the truth. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross and opened the floodgates of His grace. That's, that's what the answer is. Not, I worked hard. What's the great secret of your wealth, spiritually? You've been given a million dollars. God gave you all the riches of heaven, not because of you, often in spite of you, but certainly because of Him. So that's the doctrinal dilemma that they faced. That was in Antioch. From the doctrinal dilemma, we now have a notable debate. That takes place in Jerusalem. And so we read about it beginning in verse 4. When they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church, apostles and elders. They reported all the things that God had done with them. But 
some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. Verse 7, Peter's the first one to stand up. Okay, it's not surprising, really, that a bunch of people in Jerusalem have this stand and that they're advocates of the law of Moses. After all, they grew up with it. They were Jewish. Some of them were priests. They had served in the temple. Verse 5 says some of them were Pharisees, a very unique group, ultra-Orthodox, very conservative, highly intelligent, scholarly group of people who knew and taught the law of Moses. So it's only natural that they would have a bent towards saying, you've got to keep the law of Moses. Now remember, the book of Romans had not yet been written. Galatians had not yet been written. Hebrews had not yet been written. And that's where the whole debate over my works by keeping the law and God's grace is forged out by Paul. So the big issue here in Jerusalem in this chapter is this. Is faith in Jesus Christ alone enough? And that's what Paul was preaching. But is that enough? Is grace really as amazing as we say? Well, the religionists, the Pharisees, stood up and said, it's not enough. And notice their language at the end of verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Not, we suggest they should do that. They have to do it. Same in verse 1. Unless they are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You can't go to heaven. You can't be right with God unless you go through these rituals. Okay. Now, can you imagine what would have happened in church history if these guys would have gotten their way? What if Peter and Barnabas and Paul and James just sort of sat there and thought, well, they have a good point. But they never stood and boldly confronted that. Well, what if they would have just won this debate? Church history would be forever different, wouldn't it? Our hymnology would certainly be different. We wouldn't be singing Amazing Grace. We'd be singing Amazing Circumcision. How sweet the sound. (laughs) We'd be singing, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the law of Moses. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the law of Moses. Or a mighty fortress is the law. A bulwark sometimes failing. It would change everything. Now... Whenever, even today, whenever any leader, no matter who, stands up and says, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but now you need to be baptized our way by our group in this manner, or you have to go through this ritual first, you have this scenario played out again. Whenever that happens, that leader is denying the gospel of grace. He is adding to the gospel of grace, and it's becoming what Paul said, another gospel. See, to add anything, whether it's circumcision or baptism or confirmation or extreme unction, as necessary to get to heaven, any sacramental work, any sacerdotal work beyond just trusting Christ is saying, in effect, 
What Jesus did wasn't enough. He's not a complete Savior. We need something else. You see, any bridge to heaven constructed 99 one-hundredths of what Christ had done and one one-hundredth of my effort is doomed for failure. That's like Jesus saying, well, I can get you most of the way to heaven. I just can't manage to get you all the way there. That's not the gospel that Paul preached. Now, I know in, in talking like this, some would say, boy, Skip, you know, that's a dangerous thing to tell people. After all, you know, young Christians, if you don't tether them down by some rules and regulations, they're going to go wild. Well, that's where you're wrong. Here's the truth. Rules without relationship always leads to rebellion. Always. In any family, any parent-child relationship, rules without relationship always leads to rebellion. It's where relationship is and love is fostered, that obedience ensues. The only thing that tethers us is love. I'll give you an example. I grew up having to do chores in my house. You listening, Nathan? (laughs) Every night, my job was doing the dishes after dinner. Every night. It was the law. And I, I kept the law of Moses. I took the dishes in the kitchen. I washed them. Now, I did it. Just enough to get it done. I didn't look at every glass and say, oh, that's, oh, I love it. I didn't care. I just did it and it was done. Then I moved out. I became a bachelor. Okay, now, honest confession. I was a slob. But if I invited some young lady over to my house, I was going to cook dinner. Yes, I could cook a mean TV dinner from time to time. (laughs) If I knew she was coming over, every dish was cleaned. The house was spotless, relatively speaking, for a bachelor. (laughs) What made the difference? Love made the difference, or what I thought at the time was love. Another example. I went to school and studied a whole bunch of subjects. I had tests I had to take. I had things I had to read. I had portions I had to study, and I did it, and I got by. You know what? Here's the truth. I study more today on a weekly basis than I ever did in school. But I do it out of love. I love. I love God. I love God's people. It's a sheer joy. It's a whole different motivation. And so it is with keeping God's law or obeying God out of love. That's what tethers a person. Let's look at Peter and what he says. He's in that conference back in Jerusalem. Peter's a realist. Look at what he says in verse 7. When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the hearts, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. Uh, Here's the phrase, look at this. Purifying their hearts, not by law, not by circumcision, Purifying their hearts by faith. What is he talking about? Peter is reminding them of what happened in Acts chapter 10, where God called him to speak to a guy named Cornelius who lived in Caesarea, a Roman centurion, a Gentile. 
And he listened to what Peter preached. And he believed in Jesus. And he was baptized after he believed in Jesus, demonstrating his faith, not bringing his faith. But Peter's point is, I didn't have to circumcise the guy. I didn't have to lay on him all the laws of Moses. He believed and he was saved. God purified his heart by faith. Now look at verse 10. Now therefore, he's going to clench this. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Well, isn't that an interesting way to put it? He didn't say, they can be saved just like us. He's saying, we who have all the burden of the law, guess what? We can be saved as freely as they can be saved. Now, that's quite a statement. What Peter is saying is this. Yeah, we've had the law. We grew up with it. But you know what? We never kept it. Our fathers never kept it. And we were never able to bear that burden. He describes it as a yoke, a a chafing yoke that burdens people. You remember that Jesus said about the Pharisees, they tie heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. You say, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't God give the law? Yes. But as time went on, people added to it, perverted it, complicated it, and made it impossible to bear. I'll give you an example. The Sabbath day. Saturday, according to the Jews. The Sabbath day was a day of doing what? Nothing. It's a day of rest. But the law became so complicated that it was actually a burden to keep the Sabbath. It was harder to keep the Sabbath day of rest than it was to work six days. In the Talmud, one section of the Jewish Talmud has 24 chapters listing Sabbath laws. Okay, here's laws on how to rest. I know how to rest. I shut my eyes and veg. No, there's 24 chapters. One law specified the legal limit to walk from your home on the Sabbath was 3,100 feet. 3,101 feet, you break the law, you're guilty. However, get this. If you had food placed 3,000 feet away from your home, you could go to it and eat it. And because food is an extension of your home, you can go another 3,000 feet. So technically, you could eat your way through Jerusalem, (laughs) and you'd be all right. Or if you put a rope across the street or across an alley or attaching a building, and then you brought it back to your house, you've expanded the borders of your dwelling place, you can walk anywhere in that environment and 3,100 feet away. That's why even today there is a cord, I kid you not, that goes around the entire city of Jerusalem to enclose it. And one year, when a snowstorm broke the cable, the Jerusalemites didn't know what to do because now they're going to break the law. The cord has been severed. Here's just a little more of that. Typical passage from the scribal law shows the kind of yoke they were under. Now, you can't carry a burden on the Sabbath. But they had to kvetch over that. What is a burden? Here it is. A burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Milk enough for one swallow. 
Honey enough to put on one wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, and read enough to make one pen. You do that, and you've broken the law. They said you couldn't write on the Sabbath. You can't write too much. Well, what's too much? So they said, he who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right or left hand, whether one kind or of two kinds, if they are written with different inks or different languages, he is guilty. Also, he that writes on two walls to form an angle or two tablets of his account book so that they can be read together is guilty. Well, no wonder Peter stands up and goes, no, wait a minute. You're talking about putting on people a burden that our fathers and us have never been able to bear. We've been crushed by it. Well, Peter says his piece, and it's powerful. And now in verse 12, Barnabas and Paul speak. They're the revivalists. They were out on the road preaching the message. Then all the multitude kept silent. And listen to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God worked through them among the Gentiles. Boy, don't you wish we had tapes or MP3 of these messages? You know, there's certain things in the Bible that, ah, oh, wish I could hear that. Peter talked about the past. This is what God did in the past with Cornelius. Barnabas and Paul bring it up to the present. This is what God is doing now among the Gentiles. We just got back. And the record of chapter 13 and 14 shows that God attested to the gospel of grace by signs and wonders and miracles. So they're giving their own personal testimony. Here's the the big umbrella point. Simple faith in what Jesus Christ has done, takes the fear away, the fear that the law brings, the fear of failure to keep it. I read an article about the Golden Gate Bridge when it was first built to span the San Francisco Bay. They had a lot of problems. They would build huge scaffoldings to get really high up to suspend those cables. The problem is, is that several people had fallen off the scaffoldings and died, which hindered, in fact, stopped the construction of the bridge. So people were so fearful, you couldn't get anybody to work on that bridge because death after death after death. So the engineers, public officials reconvened for a solution. And some bright fella suggested, why don't you build a huge net underneath? They thought, well, that's ridiculous. That'll cost so much money and take so much time. But the engineers figured that actually was the best option, and they built it. And it's interesting that the bridge went on without any hindrance at all, without any lag in schedule at all. And maybe one or two people fell after that, but they were caught by the net. And they discovered something. All of the time that they'd lost... To fear, they all made it up. They had regained it by replacing fear with faith in the net. Made all the difference. We're going to get caught. We're going to be okay. And so, too, the law brings fear. 
But underneath us are the everlasting arms, that huge net of God's favor because of what Jesus has done. Well, let's bring it to a conclusion. The next few verses is the final decision. We've heard the dilemma. We've listened to the debate. Now the final decision comes from the head of the Jerusalem council named James. Verse 13, And after they became silent, James answered, saying... By the way, you know who this James is? This is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. This is the guy who wrote the epistle of James. This is the guy whose epistle is very strict... Far more strict than Paul, it would seem. In fact, mistakenly, some people have even thought that James and Paul were in disagreement with each other. Because Paul freely speaks about God's grace, and James says, faith without works is dead. Both are true, incidentally. But if, if anybody has the clout because he's strict, it would be James. And it's also interesting to note something. Peter was not the first pope in Jerusalem. He wasn't. He wasn't the leader. He spoke and gave his his peace, but the one who made the ultimate decision was James. Peter was in submission to James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is what he said. Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written... After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Now, here's his point. This is what he does. Peter stands up and says, let me tell you my testimony, what happened with Cornelius. Um, Paul and Barnabas stand up, let us tell you what happened in Galatia. James, in listening to all sides, including the Pharisees, stands up and says, what does the Bible say? Let's find out what the Scripture says. And what the Scripture says is exactly what Peter has just told us. So, it's scripturally based. And his point, by the way, he quotes the prophet Amos in what we just read. His point is that Amos never made any mention of Gentiles first proselytizing and becoming Jews before they could be saved. And here's the good news. Now, this is good news. God accepts you as you are when you come with faith to Jesus Christ. He accepts you the way you are. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so the hymn writer is right. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. Or the other hymn writer. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Or the other hymn writer, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. All of those hymn writers are echoing the truths that were discovered on this day. So, that's the conclusion of the matter. Now he makes it practical. Next couple verses. Therefore, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble 
those who from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. So first he turns to the Pharisees, the legalists, the older brethren in the faith, the Jewish brethren. And he says basically, chill out, relax, be inclusive, don't tamper with the freedom of the faith of these new converts. They trust in Jesus. They don't know the laws of Moses. They don't know the scribal laws. They don't know the Talmud. Don't trouble them. Don't bother them. But then he turns to the other group, Barnabas, Paul, which would include all the Gentile young converts that would come to faith. And he says in verse 20, But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. See what he's doing here? See how he's saying, okay, religious people, relax, but young converts, be sensitive. Um, Legalists, be inclusive. Young converts, be sensitive. Religionists, legalists, don't tamper with their faith. But new converts don't tamper with their feelings of faith. Their history, their baggage, their customs, their culture. So three restrictions were given. By the way, these were not restrictions so they could be saved. They have nothing to do with salvation. They have everything to do with fellowship. How are these Gentiles and Jews going to get along? We've got to make these Gentiles sensitive. So tell them to abstain from anything having to do with idolatry at all. Idolatry is the most repugnant thing to God and to God's people. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. So don't even go to the idol temple and buy meat in the butcher shop of the temple. Number two, abstain from sexual immorality. Now that's not any kind of new law. All of God's people at all times we're always and are always called to abstain from sexual immorality. But it's put here because in most of the pagan temples of the time, part of the worship system was the orgy. It's where it was derived. Illicit sexuality as part of the worship system. And then finally, things strangled and blood. Why? Because... The Old Testament, the Hebrew view of life is that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So you might have complete freedom to have a a rare hamburger dripping with blood because you like it that way. Just don't do it around your Jewish brethren. It's going to stumble them. So to apply all of this message to us, there's two things to walk away from. Number one, don't make non-biblical requirements for other people. And I'll tell you what, throughout history, Christians have been famous for doing exactly that, adding burdens onto people. Well, if you're a good Christian, you have to like this music, because I like it. You have to read this version of the Bible, because I read it. We have to be very careful not criticizing those who are already God's children by faith in Christ. Second, You have freedom as a believer. But use your freedom not to express your freedom, 
Use your freedom to show love to people. Which means there will be times where you will voluntarily restrict your freedom because you love other people. Instead of saying, well, I have the freedom as a Christian to do whatever I want. That's a horrible attitude. See, grace is so amazing that it ought to make God's people gracious. If God's grace is so amazing, we ought to be changed into gracious people. As John Newton wrote in Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. What we were ought to be different than who we are. A couple weeks ago, as you know, I was in Beirut, Lebanon, and I ministered to pastors from five Arab-speaking nations, all surrounded in their cultures by a host of Muslims, some Moderate, some radical, many who want to see them gone. But pastor after pastor told me something interesting. He's saying, we're seeing more Muslims come to faith in Christ now than ever before. And I would ask him, Pastor, why is that? Why do you figure now? And they all told me this. It's because now these people are seeing the true face of their own religion. They're hearing and seeing of all of these acts of terrorism all around the world that have escalated. And they're understanding the difference between the hatred that is fostered by that versus the love and forgiveness and acceptance that they hear and see in Christianity. He goes, that is the reason they're converting, even at the point of rejection and some at the point of death. Did you know that in the Quran, Allah will graciously forgive you if you are meritorious, if you merit it, if you deserve it. And He will arbitrarily forgive. You never know if you're going to be forgiven or not. He will arbitrarily forgive. He is seen as one who weighs the scales and takes your merits and weighs your merits on the scales. It's just the opposite of Christianity. Jesus gives grace. That means undeserved favor. He'll bless you and save you if you don't deserve it. He'll send you to heaven if you don't deserve it. And none of us do. So the symbol isn't a set of scales. The symbol is a cross. Because 2,000 years ago, a finished work was accomplished. And you can't add to it. You can't add to it. You can simply believe. The disciples were bothered by that. They said, what must we do to work the works of God? Remember what Jesus said? He said, believe on the one whom he has sent. Heavenly Father, we believe. We believe that your grace is so amazing it will save a wretch like me. That we can be lost And in our lostness, you find us. We can be blind. In our blindness, we can see again. That's something that we can't do. We can't make ourselves who are blind see. It's something you've done. And whenever you do it, we can only cooperate and believe. And from that faith, we'll issue the works. Because it's based not out of fear, but out of relationship. Not out of rules, but out of love. Thank you. I pray, Lord, if anyone here today is not founded in Christ alone, that he or she would take that step to trust in Jesus alone.
Not their merit, not their religious background, in Jesus alone. It's in his name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.